This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. As I live and breathe, the Wolverine. And he's a junkie now. Who the fuck are you? You know, you got some buckshot in your door. Hello and welcome to Unequal Sequel. My name is Dave and I'm one of the two hosts of this tantalising podcast. And I'm Rich and I'm the other host of this tantalising podcast. Think of me as Johnny Castle to Dave's baby. No one puts him in a corner, but I can lift him over my head. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. The premise of Unequal Sequel is very simple. We ask our guests their best ever sequel, worst ever sequel, and finally their dream sequel. And of course, we quite often drift off and talk about other movies and just general chats about life and interesting things our guests have done. And I do have to give out a warning that we do give out spoilers because we love to give out spoilers because most of the time the films we talk about are very old. Sometimes they're not. But if you don't want to hear about the sequel we're talking about, go take the bins out. I'm sure it's been night go take him out come back in it'll be fine because on today's episode we are joined by m from verbal diorama m is a brilliant podcaster and if you've not listened to verbal diorama yet you really must go and do that but more than that she's also a brilliant journalist and writes for film stories magazine she even wrote a little article about us um and our little podcast so yeah go and check that out film stories it's probably the nicest thing that's anyone's ever said about us yeah, yeah. big time <laughs> so we're very excited to sit down with them and chat all things sequels with her these are m from verbal dioramas unequal sequels enjoy do you remember the first sequel you got excited about to be honest it was probably x-men 2 that's a good shout good yeah. film because i was such a huge fan of the original x-men movie and x-men 2 was was on my list it was on my short list it's a really good sequel it is a really good sequel. It's amazing. Like, very early in the in the kind of superhero Marvel-y kind of genre. There weren't a lot around before. before oh, the comic books films, yeah. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, I still think as well, a, a lot of the old CG probably doesn't hold up that well, <laughs> but that opening scene of Nightcrawler in the White House, it still absolutely slaps with the music. Yeah. And just that real kind of genuine sense of terror mm. that A, mutants can be controlled like that, and B, that a mutant can be anywhere and it kind of you know really enhances that fear and the, the propaganda of, of that world that you know mutants are bad and mutants should be feared and all of that um, mm. and it does it so brilliantly in one scene and the movie itself is super fun but I've never been so excited in my whole life 
than seeing the trailer for the first X-Men movie. And so when they said a second one was coming, it was like, oh my Jesus Christ, <laughs> Like <laughs> this is going to be amazing. And it didn't disappoint. Did you see it early on in the cinema? Was it first day viewing or did you? I actually didn't see it at the cinema, but I, I distinctly remember getting it on DVD and watching it on DVD. And, and any subsequent X-Men movie, I've always been really excited for any X-Men movie. And there've been like varying levels. I think you're being kind. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I like to be a very positive person. And it's very rare that I will say something is really atrociously bad because I think even with the choice that I have for my worst, I still have a lot of nice things to say about it. Nice. Just because I like to be positive because the mm. whole verbal diorama mantra is basically that movies are really hard to make and we should be celebrating them and how much work goes into them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, what you think about a movie kind of doesn't really matter. It's still, you know, a piece of work that all of these people have put all of their time into. You know, these are all professional people. And yeah, you know, well, art is subjective, isn't it? You know, mm. you, some people like stuff, some people don't like it. And, and that's absolutely fine. But you've got to give respect, I think, when, when anyone makes a movie. There are people out there that like Weekend at Bernie's too. You know, they, they, they exist. <laughs> well, I've not seen that. Don't. So uh, I'm sure I'm sure it's great for those people who really love that movie. We try and say no one tries to make a bad film, but you know, I think once... they tried to, didn't they? <laughs> I feel like there's a few films they did try, but yeah, you're correct. Someone's worst film is also going to be someone's favourite film, probably. Let's leave the Wolverine films out, but out of the X Men films, uh huh. What? How would you rate them? Best to worst? Oh gosh, I've got to try and remember them all now. Okay, okay. I'll try and help you. There's one, two, and three. Yeah, so you've got you've got one, two, the last stand, and then you've got first class, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, Crobic. Well, worst, and okay. <laughs> so worst is probably Dark Phoenix, but again, there's good things in Dark Phoenix. There's some really good character moments in Dark Phoenix. I enjoyed Phoenix. it. It's a, there's a pencil analogy in that movie that I think is really great. That, you know, how you choose to use a pencil. You can either choose to use a pencil for good by like writing with it, or you can choose to use it for bad by like, stabbing someone in the eye with it. Or it, I'm paraphrasing, but it's I a like good thing those lines. But, <laughs> but I really like that analogy. And then I'd probably go maybe The Last Stand, Apocalypse, mm. because I was really looking forward to Apocalypse because... I was always a big fan of the the animated series. Yeah, yeah. And Apocalypse was a cool villain in the animated series. Yeah. And uh, they had Oscar Isaac as Apocalypse. And I was like, man, that was disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> like, but again, there's some really interesting things that they did in, Apoc um, in Apocalypse. Right. So then I'd probably go with the original X-Men movie from 2000 because that obviously set up literally the whole universe. So I think we can't, can't say that's a bad movie. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I think Rogue is terribly miscast, but anyway, that I digress. And then I would probably go First Class, then Days of Future Past, then Two. Nice. Yeah, that's a good order. But there's 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 not a lot between Two and Days of Future Past and First Class because I think Days of Future Past as an ensemble piece where you've basically got the old the old team teaming up with the new team and everyone coming together. That was like Avengers level stuff for the X-Men, just to have like the, the OG X-Men and then the new X-Men and have like James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart in a scene together. And I was just like literally fangirling all over Days of Future Past. I love that movie. But yeah, there's, there's something about X-Men 2 that still, 
I still just love it so much. And 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 this is a franchise that's got so many flaws. It's literally <laughs> so great in so many ways, but it's got so many flaws. But mm. I really, I I kind of love it for its flaws. And ultimately, the whole kind of the whole franchise has always revolved around Wolverine. And you know, yeah. it was it was an interesting decision that I met they made at the time um, because arguably the leader of the X-Men has pretty much always been Cyclops or Storm. So yeah. you've kind of got these two characters, Cyclops and Storm, who were, you know, especially Storm, who is loved by the fandom. But they kind of choose to sideline both of those characters for, obviously Wolverine is also loved by the fandom. And then they choose a complete unknown pretty much to, in this role. And he just kind of blows everyone away. And, you know, there's some great casting decisions in that first movie with like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and Hugh Jackman. And then there's some questionable casting decisions. Um, but overall, it's a pretty iconic cast. And then they were like, yeah, we're yeah. going to redo it all. We're going to recast all these people in 2011. And we're going to get James McAvoy. and We're going to get Michael Fassbender. And it works. And it's mm, like, it does. how did they do this again? You know, in many ways, I think the new cast sometimes on the odd occasion is slightly better than the old cast, but you can't, you know, the Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are godlike as far as I'm concerned. You can't mm. get better. But yet they, they still kind of did with McAvoy and Fassbender. Mm. It's like a new take on the characters. And yeah, I, I love the whole franchise. I'm such a huge nerd because <laughs> X-Men were the characters that kind of introduced me to Marvel. And so I'm just such a huge fan of everything to do with X-Men. Yeah, it's a gateway, isn't it? It is. I think Magneto's the best supervillain. He's amazing. I, I really do. Like, I, on a par with Craven the Hunter. I love Craven the Hunter because I love Spider-Man. But yeah, I think Magneto is my most my most kind of relatable villain. You absolutely understand where his motivation's coming yeah. from. And you almost kind of, especially in like X2, you're sort of like, I, I kind of agree with <laughs> you. Exactly. But that's the point, isn't it? Is, you know, they always say that uh, a villain is the hero of his own story or her own story, you know, mm. regardless. Oh, yeah. nice, but nice. you've got to be able to empathise with the villain. And that's probably why so many you know, MCU villains we've had problems with. Someone like Malekith in Thor The Dark World, he got a lot of slate because it was like, yeah, he wants to make the whole world dark again. But why? Like, what's his motivation? <laughs> I don't understand him. I don't know what he really yeah. wants. And then, you know, they bring in someone like Thanos and you're like, I actually kind of agree with that guy, you know? And and, it, yeah. and, and someone yeah. like Killmonger, you're like, yeah, that dude makes sense, you know? But that's mm, that's yeah. what makes a great villain. Magneto is exactly the same sort of person. You completely understand with everything he's been through and all the persecution he's faced as a Jewish mutant and a survivor yeah. of, you know, concentration camps in Nazi Germany, how he would think about this situation and what he would want to do to remedy this situation. and. Yeah, he's yeah. one of the greatest Marvel villains ever. What is your best sequel? It's interesting that we're talking about X-Men. <laughs> it's almost like I've planned a segue <laughs> into this, which I, I have not at all. My best sequel is Logan. Finally. And now I want to caveat. I want to, I want to talk about the other contenders because I, I had lots of contenders for this. And I just want... This is your podcast. Go well, for it. Well, I just wanted to go through some of the, the other contenders with you because you, you knew because I messaged you and I said, oh, it's between two. It's between this one and Logan. And you said, well, 
The other one, quite a few people have chosen that, which I completely understand why. And that one was Aliens, because to me, Aliens is one of the greatest sequels ever made, because it basically enhances the world, the world that it built in, on in Alien. It kind of enhances that world. And we know we learn more about that world, but it also kind of changes everything about that world. And obviously it's just it does, iconic yeah. in so many. I absolutely love that movie. I love the standard edition. I love the director's cut edition. I think it's genuinely one of the greatest things that James Cameron's ever done. And this is James Cameron. He's done a lot of good stuff. And then it was like, well, if loads of people have already done that, then that kind of made my decision a lot easier. And some of the other contenders were, were actually another James Cameron movie, Terminator 2. Uh, that was on my list. X-Men 2 was also on yep. my list. So I had two X-Men movies on my list. Of course I did. Um, Toy Story <laughs> 2 was on my list. And, <laughs> and Grease 2 was on my list. Now, I just want to I just want to explain <laughs> the whole Grease 2 thing because I love that movie so much. It brings me so much joy. And I was actually listening to the episode that you did with Dave and Kathy at the Cinemile. And I love the Cinemile yeah. because everyone loves the Cinemile, of course, because they're wonderful. And I listened to the episode and Kathy mentions Grease too. So I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Kathy loves Grease too. This is fantastic. And then it was only when I got to the end of the episode that I realised, well, actually, that was Kathy's worst. And I was like, and then at the end of the episode, you're like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how we'd cope if anyone cl- <laughs> Which is these two as their best. So well, the thing was, she did choose it as her best originally. Yeah, and they rewatched it and went, "Nope, <laughs> no, it's it's my worst." And so what what happened was that she that they picked um, Sex in the City two as their worst their worst Which sequel. Is awful. So I watched I watched Sex in the City two. I'm so for sorry. no reason. The thing is, I I do love that movie. I unironically love that movie. I've written pieces for film stories about how much I love Grease too. So then I thought, no, because I feel like I would lose all credibility with literally everyone. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I would. We would hear you out. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, Grease 2, I think it's wonderful. But then it's like, look, if I'm going to come on, an equals equal. I can't bring in Grease 2. I've got to leave the majesty of Grease 2 for another time and another podcast. So that all brings me back around to Logan because... As much as I love the X-Men universe and everything that the X-Men universe does, the character of Wolverine had so much promise that they were like, well, okay, we're going to give Wolverine his own solo movie. And so Mm. they gave us X-Men Origins Wolverine and it wasn't great. Again, it had some really good things in it. That's being kind. That's the thing. I am incredibly (laughs) kind about everything, pretty much. You are, Um, yeah. (laughs) It had some great things in it. And Hugh Jackman is always great. I mean, yeah, it gave us a mute version of Deadpool. But again, you know, they fixed that eventually with Deadpool. So I can't give any hate to that. They gave us, like, Liev Schreiber as Sabretooth. And I'm like, okay. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. There were some, there's several things about that movie that weren't great. But anyway, we, we got that. And then they were like, no, no, no. We want to get James Mangold in. And we want to get James Mangold to do the Wolverine. And the Wolverine was like two thirds of a fantastic Wolverine movie. And then one third of a crappy CG battle at the end. Oh, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the parts of the Wolverine that worked really, really worked. The whole setting in Japan and... You know, having Wolverine with like PTSD and all of that stuff. I was like, this is kind of what the character deserves. This is what the character needs. And it was only when it got to the end that I was like, oh, well, 
that that's kind of let it down a little bit with like a <laughs> you know the CG metal monster thing shredder yeah, thing, yeah. it looks a bit mm. like shredder from that teenage mutant ninja turtles movie from 2014 or whatever okay fine but yeah that there was a really great movie in the wolverine and so then you come round to 2017 and they bring out logan and it's so different to everything mm. else that's come before it first of all it seems to be mostly completely forgotten sort of in the whole x-men lore you know because if anyone says oh i'm gonna watch an x-men movie you know, they might stick First Class on, they might stick X-Men 2 on. But I really feel like most of the time, I think most people, I mean, I'm speaking for myself here or speaking for people that I know, but I feel like not many people actually remember Logan and how yeah. special Logan is. Because Fox took a huge risk with this movie because yep. it was so different, because it's set in the future and it's so dark and gritty and really gory. It's basically taking this character of Wolverine and giving him this sort of R rating that he's never had before. You know, we've never seen Wolverine chop off a guy's arm or head or... And we get that in this movie. We very, we very much oh do. Oh my God, it's incredible. <laughs> it's great to see the promise of this character who's so lethal and so angry that he goes on full berserker mode. And in the other movies, it's like, well, it's a PG-13 version of Wolverine's berserker mode. But in this, you get full-on Wolverine going at it. And, you know, he's an old guy. You know, he's like, hmm. I can't be doing with this. I don't know if I can swear, but I was going to say the S word. You can. Okay. I, don't, don't I can't be doing with this shit. <laughs> because he's like... He's getting old, you know, he's sick. He's like, the way his mutant power works means that he can, he lives and he continually lives. And he's lived through all of these like decades and decades. And it's like constant pain and agony. And you feel literally every, every agonizing time he gets shot or his claws won't come out. And, you mm. know, it's just, it's visceral. This movie is so visceral. I think, I think it's a masterpiece, oh, God. personally. I can't, I can't say enough good things about this movie. You know, it, it's like a lot of superhero movies just kind of fall back on those old superhero tropes. But this is more than any other superhero movie. You know, this is essentially a Western. It's a road trip movie. It's a sci-fi movie. It's an action movie. It's also a drama as well. It's got no tie-ins to the previous material at all. You could come into this movie and not know anything because it sets up... My wife did. My wife it, did, yeah. And what did she... Did she, she kind it. of get the... The idea of, of what the movie was trying to say. Yeah, she she caught up to pace quite yeah. quickly, to be honest. It's, yeah, carry on. No, 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 no I'm, I'm genuinely curious because obviously I know the X-Men cinematic lore quite well, obviously, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> the thing that I love so much about this movie is it doesn't need to go into any kind of flashback scenes or a monologue at the start about, oh, it's 2029 and mutants yeah, no yeah. longer exist and no mutants been born for 25 years. And it doesn't need to do that because it tells you that nope. throughout the movie in these really subtle ways. You know, this is not a superhero story. This is a human story. It's a story about humanity and, and about pain and love and loss and all of these things and, and sickness. It's also a superhero story that doesn't care about selling merch. You know, there are no, there's no toy line for this movie, <laughs> probably because it's R-rated. But it's like, we don't care about these hero images that you've been sold because this is, this is kind of the future of superheroes. This is like a time when basically all of the heroes are dead and all you've got left are Logan and Charles and Caliban, basically. Mm. And the only reason yeah. that 
Logan is alive is because of his healing power, which is slowly dwindling away. And the only reason Charles is alive is, as we find out, he is the cause of quite a lot of the death and destruction that's happened. It doesn't, I don't think it really explains why Caliban is still alive, but... They used Caliban to track the mutants to kill them off, didn't they? They did. I reckon they kept him alive just for saying thanks. Possibly. I don't know, because it never actually goes into the reason why all of the mutants are gone, whether it's, we know why some of them are gone because of Charles, but it doesn't ex... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, it's like it's it's like a tiny, tiny little thing. But they obviously... <laughs> I'm backtracking now. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the sort of primary things about why Logan is so good is because it humanises these characters to the point where, yes, they, they have these powers. But like I say, with Logan specifically, his powers are waning. You know, he's he's been alive for how many hundreds of years at this point? And his his powers are waning to the point where he can't survive continually being shot because the adamantium mm. that they put in him is now poisoning him sufficiently so that eventually he's just going to die a very painful death. And then we've also got Charles Xavier of it all in having this really powerful mutant who we saw through all of these movies teaching and guiding and being there for people and believing so much in humanity and that mutants were the future Mm. of everything and to have him in a situation where he's suffering from alzheimer's which is a very human disease but he's the most powerful mutant on the planet and it kind of asks these questions of that no other superhero movie dares to ask in the, yeah, it's great that we've got all these heroes and they've got all of these powers, but what happens if they become sick? And what happens if they can't control these powers anymore because of something like Alzheimer's, which is, you know, degenerative disorder of the brain? And what happens to a mutant like Charles, who could, if he wanted to, mm. we've seen it in previous movies, with the help of Cerebro, can find all of the mutants and kill mm. all of the mutants. Or find all of the humans and kill all of the humans. And I think it's, it's a, literally a superhero film that does nothing like anything else. It doesn't gloss over any of this. It is completely devastating with, with this story. And I'm not even talked about Laura, because Laura's literally the most hopeful character in the whole movie. And yet she's experienced so much trauma, you know, literally being bred, born and bred to be a killer. And then once they realise that these kids don't want to kill, they decide to kill these kids and the whole and then you got the whole x24 thing and i mean it's awesome hmm. it's absolutely awesome to have like young hugh jackman fighting old hugh jackman it's brilliant but jesus christ that is a lethal machine like with no soul this is a movie that asks so many questions and it doesn't give you all the answers which is again something that i really like about it but because it came at a time where Disney was kind of in the process of purchasing Fox and all of that. I feel like a character like Laura would have been, it would have been so great to have her, to have Daphne Keane grow into that role, become the new Wolverine. That would have just been, and I I still have hope. I still have hope that Disney (laughs) have Daphne Keane on their books and they're like, we want to do Wolverine movie. Disney are going to sanction an X-23, are they? That's, that's, you know, (laughs) doesn't fit their brand. I've got my fingers crossed. (laughs) I got got my fingers crossed. But we are going to get the X-Men eventually. So I, you know, I I don't know, but I, I really hope there's so much, because there's so much promise in her character and what her character stands for, 
And literally, these are just kids who just want to be free. And the whole relationships between Laura and Logan and Charles, it's one of the most wonderful things. Laura and Charles, especially, it's one of my favorite things because he's like, this is the girl that I've been talking to. And oh, it's just wonderful. And then I love all the relationships. The relationships in this movie are so well done. Because you genuinely believe each and every one. And I've ranted for so long about <laughs> Logan. That's brilliant. That That's what we want. <laughs> oh, there's, there's so much pain and humanity and realism and, and heartbreak in this movie. That's the thing. This the realism, isn't it? Because And yet it's it's a superhero movie. Mm, you know? Yeah. You don't expect it. But it's a superhero movie, movie where innocent people die. So the, yeah. the the point of this movie where you know this is not your bog standard superhero movie is when the innocent family who help Logan and Charles and Laura just take them in and feed them, they yeah. they die. And that's when you know it's not a standard superhero movie. And then the second time is when you really find out that the dad's not dead and he doesn't just heroically save Logan. He then turns the gun on Logan because it's all it's yeah. all his fault that his family are dead. You know, that's that's why this movie is better than your average superhero movie. You know, Absolutely. it's got that extra layer. And it's it's that. I mean, so it's based on the Mark Miller, Old Man Logan comic run, very loosely, <laughs> you know, very kind yeah. of like the character is, but there's not a lot of the story that's the same. But it does have that still, still, still that sense of hopelessness, like the hope has gone, mm-hmm. you know, and it brings in the kind of X-23 storyline with, with Laura. Yeah, it brings that extraness to, to give you that bit of hope, I think, because it could be a very, very very dark movie if you didn't bring <laughs> yeah. the kids in to kind of lift it slightly and give, just give it that little yeah. bit of let's get to Canada where all things are good <laughs> yeah but but I also feel like a lot of movies do tend to you know bring in you know let's bring in the children at some point in a movie to, to for some comic relief or something but there's no real reason to have a kid in your movie it's just oh we want to appeal to some sort of child demographic so you'll have a child actor or you'll have you know a, a cousin oliver or something coming into your movie <laughs> But in this, I agree with what you're saying. You need the children mm. because you need that hope. Because without Laura and without Logan having to go on this trip to save her, you know, and taking Charles, without all of that, this this would be a very dire movie with no, you know, hope in sight. And even the whole Sunseeker thing, you know, Logan's like, we're going to buy a yacht and we're going to go out to sea. And, and that's where me and Charles can be safe. And die. And die. Uh, and, yeah. well, and die. <laughs> but, but ultimately, to try and keep, Charles away from the populations of the cities that are po- potentially going to be affected by some of his seizures. And, um, oh, it absolutely breaks my heart. The scene when you have X-24 and, and he kills Charles and then Logan finds him and he says, it wasn't me. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. and then he kind of carries Charles to the truck. And I think the last thing Charles says is Sunseeker. Mm, is, yeah. Breaks honestly breaks my heart. This movie makes me sob. It makes me sad when he's just just before that moment. He says, "This is the best oh, day, like yeah. the best day he's had forever." And he's so happy, and he turns around and just ching. Yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking because if you have kind of been with these characters since the year two thousand, and you've you know mm. you've obviously been with Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart over the course of their tenure as these characters, and to start in two thousand 
with these characters and to get to, well, 2017, essentially, or 2027 in the universe. And to see the relationship between these characters and, and how it's evolved and grown and how different it is with Logan being the caretaker and, and all of that. It's, mm. it's just absolutely heartbreaking to see characters that you've grown to love so much end up Die. in this way. Mm. Yeah. How, how did you feel about the ending of the film, the Logan death? <laughs> I, I I, mean, I understand why, because I feel like Hugh Jackman was at a point where he was like, I love this character, but yeah. I've been playing this yeah. character for like 17 years and I'm done. Yeah. And I get that. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, it broke my heart, you know, when Laura calls him daddy and he's basically impaled on this tree stump. And one of the things that always got me was there's a scene in the Wolverine, and uh, Yukio says to Logan, she says, I've got it written down because I wanted to remember it. She says, all I can see is one part of a person's life, their death, and I saw yours. I see you on your back. There's blood everywhere. You're holding your own heart in your hand. And it prophesizes <sighs> what's going to happen in Logan because it's not his actual heart. No. It's Laura because he's holding Laura in his hand. He's on his back on this tree stump, and that is his death. That's and nice. And prophesized in the Wolverine. That's very nice. That's some that's some good work. <laughs> Before you saw this film, what were your feelings going into it? Were you did you think it was going to be this good? Were you worried because the, the first one's not great and the second one's, like you said, is good for three quarters and then it it dips? Did you have high hopes or were you concerned? I had reasonably high hopes because. Like I say, I was reasonably happy with what James Mangold did with The Wolverine, but I feel like there was maybe a little bit of studio interference that said, oh, no, we need this CG battle at the end. So, yeah, yeah. Whereas I feel like with Logan, it feels like if the studio did interfere with this, it was very minimal. And I think they just let the team make perfect swan song for Hugh Jackman. Patrick Stewart mm. because I feel like they knew where they wanted to go with these characters and they knew it had to be good and then with the yeah. whole I've never read Old Man Logan I know a little about the story of Old Man Logan but the idea of Old Man Logan to have this older version of the character and to kind of tell a story about the future of the character I I was I quite anticipated this movie but I didn't think it would be as good as it is yeah I was genuinely quite blown away yeah. by how good it was yeah, exactly the same. and by how emotional it made me because I never thought I'd leave an X-Men movie with like tears streaming down my face. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, this was this is a movie that I rewatch quite frequently, I would say. More probably more so than some of the other <laughs> X-Men movies. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's that good. It's a, that... it's a bit more grown up, isn't it? It's a bit. Yeah. It's a bit. It sounds a bit like Fairly. I'm not being disparaging about other. You show it to the kids, oh would God, you? God no! Of course you wouldn't show it to kids. But I think it's <laughs> the themes are a bit more grown up too. A bit more. Yeah. You know, get you in the feels <laughs> than, than maybe the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of like. But it also it's it's really good as well because I remember a time when this wasn't on Disney Plus, even with like Disney's acquisition of Fox. Mm. But I noticed most recently they've added it to Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, that's where I watched it. Yeah. Which is great because there was a point where Disney Plus wasn't going to have any movie like this. So I really like the fact that Disney are actually acknowledging that this exists. Yeah. Do you think this is going to be one of a kind, though? Do you think Marvel are ever going to be brave enough to make this kind of movie? I mean, we got Deadpool and we'll see what would they do with that. Yeah. But this was just a different level, like the adult themes, like you said. Will Marvel ever stretch to that again, like bank on 
that's what people want to see. Is it good for them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that's a really difficult question because Marvel Studios and by extension Disney are literally all about family friendly. Mm. You know, they'll excuse the odd F-bomb here and there, but you won't tend to get anything more than that. I I agree with you. I think we're going to need to see what they do with Deadpool 3 because they've confirmed that that will be R-rated at least. Yeah. And Ryan Reynolds <laughs> is very hands-on with that. Yeah. So I can see that it being very in tune with the first and second Deadpool movie. But honestly, I don't know because I feel like a movie like this goes against the whole Marvel Studios ethos. We did obviously have some deep and interesting and somber themes with Infinity War and Endgame. What more Infinity War, really, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because that was essentially Thanos' movie. That was basically the bad guy winning. Mm. And there was a point in time where if you thought of the MCU, you would never have thought they would do a movie like Infinity War. And yet it works in the environment that their interconnected MCU does. I think we're going to have to see what they do with the X-Men. So what they do with Deadpool and what they do with the X-Men, how they bring the X-Men into this universe, whether they recast all of the X-Men, whether they bring in some of the Fox X-Men. You just don't know. You know, they've, they've kind of hinted at it in WandaVision. And I know that kind of didn't go anywhere, but there had there has been a little hint about X Men. But I think I I don't know. I think this was such a risk, and it paid off. But I feel like the MCU as as an entity, something to this kind of tone, doesn't work really with within yeah. the MCU. It'd be like having a movie like this, and then having Charles like you know make a little quip or something <laughs> like in the style of Tony Stark, and it just. It just wouldn't work in a movie no. like Logan. I mean, Logan is funny in places. It's 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 actually got some genuinely good humour. It's well, a lot of like visual humour. Like when you've got Laura, like she's riding on that little mechanical pony and it stops working. <laughs> and so she basically tries to break it. Um, and then Logan comes along and puts like another quarter in and says, this is your last go. Yeah, and it's yeah. like tiny little bits of comedy like that. But yeah, I don't, I don't think the MCU's version of humour would work in in Logan's universe, but I don't know. How do you recast Hugh Jackman's Wolverine? How he he didn't get nominated for this. I don't know. I I couldn't work out last night, but how do you go around solving that problem? I don't know. I think this got um, an adapted screenplay Oscar nomination and then it lost to Call Me By Your Name, I think. I've not seen Call Me By Your Name. I probably should. Yeah, the fact that this didn't get acting nominations at the very least Patrick Stewart is phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. Hugh Jackman is incredible. Daphne Keane doesn't even speak for like, I don't know, hundred the first 100 minutes or something. Yeah. Doesn't even mm. utter a word. And then it's mostly in Spanish. But she's like acting with her face like the entire time she's on screen. And the fact that this little, you know, 11, 12-year-old girl can match in a scene with Hugh Jackman and can kind of match that energy mm. in, her, in her performance. She's amazing. She's so she underrated in this movie. Recasting Wolverine, I think, is going to be the bane of Kevin Feige's life. <laughs> I feel like he's already having nightmares about that. Maybe don't recast Wolverine. Maybe have your Laura Kinney X-23 as your Wolverine. I mean, that that would be no, the idea too violent. for me. You know, she doesn't have to be too violent. Not this, maybe not this Laura Kinney. Maybe this Laura Kinney's too violent, Dave. But X-23 from the comics, you know, that kind of, you know, that character who essentially does become the next Wolverine, wears the same costume, you know, that that you could you could do that. It's, you know. Well, I, I I look forward to seeing it, wherever it is. And they have to do it. <laughs> they, so, yeah, that's the thing. They, they have to recast this actor, or this character, sorry. But yeah, I, I would be very interested. 
I feel like it's going to cause a fan backlash no matter who they cast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, of course. Because everyone's oh, going to yeah. be like, well, what about Hugh Jackman? <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Jackman's sitting there, you know, you know, yeah, smoking a cigar like, with his... <laughs> I'm 60 years old. I'm not going to be Wolverine. Go away. He's 60 now. He's 60. No, he's not. I By he the time, like 50s, yeah. But... Yeah, okay. By the time we get to Wolverine, yeah. he will be. But yeah, he's like, you know, sitting in his living room, you know, smoking a cigar going, nah, I'm done. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What is the the most disappointed you've been in a sequel? So not worst, not your worst sequel. What has been the most disappointing sequel? So you went in with really high hopes. For example, you love The Mummy, right? Yeah. Did you go in high hopes for The Mummy 2? This is where you tell me to like The Mummy 2. Well, so okay. Here's the- <laughs> tell me to go away if I'm wrong. No. But I'm trying to give you an yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Here's the thing. I actually... I. I was disappointed about The Mummy Returns, but I feel like... We can go, oh, The Mummy Free, The Mummy oh, Free. Oh, God, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is the worst. That's I, bad. <laughs> actually, I should have chosen that one, shouldn't I? <laughs> oh, my God, I've made a terrible mistake. No, I, I feel like The Mummy Returns, I really can't hate on it too much. It's not as good as the original. I don't care what well, anyone says. The original is perfect. No, it's not. Um, the Mummy Returns... But The Mummy Returns had a lot of problems. I actually did an episode end of uh, towards the end of last year, I think it was September time, about The Mummy Returns, just because I wanted to kind of find out the, the, the kind of history of, of how they made The Mummy Returns. And, and obviously it was, it was literally, Stephen Summers got a call, I think it was maybe the day after The Mummy premiered, and they basically said, look, we want a sequel. So, you know, they, they didn't actually have a great deal of time to, to write and set up this sequel. And they had so many problems with the visual effects as well. And obviously the visual effects of The Mummy Returns tend to be, shall we say, not treated very kindly on the internet, <laughs> especially one Scorpion King. Yeah. You know, and, and there's been loads of videos on YouTube about how to make the Scorpion King better and all of that stuff. And I'm like, okay, you know, modern CG can do a lot of cool things. And it, 
you know, with the power of hindsight, with the greatest will in the world, CG in 2001 is not going to be as good as CG now. That is a stone cold, stone cold fact. But um, I was disappointed <laughs> about the movie Returns. But, you know, the, the, the sequel that I chose is my worst, mainly because of how disappointed I was, because I, okay. I felt like there was a lot of promise there mm. and none of it was really <laughs> executed in the right way. Way. Well, let's get on to that then. What is your worst sequel? Okay, so this was literally my only choice. I should have gone with the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, but anyway, it doesn't matter now. <laughs> Too late to change my mind. So yeah. my worst is Pacific Rim Uprising. Hmm. <laughs> and I know yeah. that a lot of people are going to be saying, well, that's not a bad movie. Mm, it's, it's not a good movie. It's, it's not a good movie. This is no Logan. <laughs> this is... This is an X-Men Dark Phoenix of a movie. Yeah. I'd never watched it before. I watched it for this podcast. And at the end, I had to text Dave and just say, I was expecting a big, dumb movie, but I wasn't expecting the biggest, dumbest movie <laughs> I've seen for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing, is that I, I love Pacific Rim so much. And I probably do enjoy it more than most, because I feel like it's a movie that knows what it is. Yeah. So it's because, I'm. first of all, I'm a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. I've seen all of his movies. I love all of his movies in like differing levels. There's differing levels of love for del Toro. But mostly I love his world building and I love the ideas that he comes and he brings in his movies. Even some of his older stuff like Kronos, you can really see like the tinges of inspiration that he gives to his newer movies. Mm. And there seems to be like reoccurring themes in his movies. And when I found out that Del Toro was going to be doing essentially a kaiju movie, yeah, I mm. was like, okay, I'm really down for this. I'm really down for Pacific Rim. But I really love that with Pacific Rim, the first movie, Del Toro clearly has a love for the movies that inspired Pacific Rim. Yes. You know, the Japanese monster movies like Godzilla and, and all of that. There's so much love and attention to detail and so much depth mm. that comes with a movie directed by Del Toro. You know, little things that you don't tend to pick up watching Pacific Rim, like the psychological trauma of piloting a Jaeger and the ethics of the drift, yeah. you know, and being drift compatible and what that entails, what that does to two people basically connects them. So ethically, you kind of got to say, well, is it right that my co-pilot should know all of my deepest, innermost thoughts and feelings? Yeah. Is that really right? But anyway, and the whole using of kaiju technology, you know, the whole black market for kaiju, you know, using brains and all of this kind of physical matter to like help with the Jaeger effort, the war effort, and all of that sort of stuff. But it's mostly Del Toro is known for his stunning world building in every movie that he makes. You know the world, you understand the world, you understand the humanity of the world. And what I love about Pacific Rim is that, yes, it is essentially just you've got big robots and you've got big monsters. The monsters come out of the sea and the robots are there and you fight. And I'm like, give me some of that because I love shit like that. Yeah, I <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. But it's a simple kind of setup, but it's not a dumb movie. There's a lot of smart stuff in Pacific Rim. Yeah. And so when I heard about Pacific Rim Uprising, I was like, well, this is great because Pacific Rim did huge in China. China saved Pacific Rim from being a huge box office dud. So, of course, the Chinese are like, we want another Pacific Rim movie. Yeah. And so Legendary were like, okay, we'll make another one. And I get that. But then Pacific Rim Uprising came along. <laughs> 
And um, there. Oh. Okay. I can see you're trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, I am trying to be nice. You don't have to be um, too nice. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's like no love for this world. No. There's no love for no. the Jaegers. There's no love for the Kaiju. Kaiju don't even turn up until like the third act. Nope. What's the point of having Pacific Rim if you've not got any Kaiju in the movie? Yeah. Anyway. Um, phrase, <laughs> phrase. This is what I was saying to myself this morning. So Kept checking uh, the watch. I was like, they're going to come up soon. So the thing is with this movie, right, the plot itself, the story isn't completely nonsensical. Like it makes sense in its individual parts, in the fact that, okay, Ish. so we had, we had this war with the kaiju and then we defeated the kaiju yay idris elba died boo but ultimately he's this amazing war hero now Mm. post his death and we've had no more kaiju attacks because they stopped the clock in pacific rim it's awesome everything about pacific rim is awesome so they stopped the clock and they don't have any i think it's set i want to say 10 years years. yeah 10 years later so there's been no kaiju attacks the world has been peaceful and free of kaiju they still have jaegers which okay of police fine uh, okay you've built all of your jaegers were destroyed but then you're building new ones as police officers mm. okay whatever and then you have these people who are like getting jaeger scraps and building stuff and there's a black market okay fine i can accept that because we saw that in the mcu going back to the mcu like yeah. post the battle of new york people were getting scraps from basically everything that happened and creating their own tech okay cool the problem that i have there's a lot of problems actually that i have <laughs> Okay, so I want to start with John Boyega. Okay, yeah. I love John Boyega. He's awesome. John Boyega in a movie is awesome, and he's good in this movie. One of the he's the best thing in it, I would say. He's, yeah, <laughs> he tries so One hard. One of the because there are issues with Pacific Rim. It's not a perfect movie. One of the issues in Pacific Rim for me is Charlie Hunnam. He's crap in that movie. <laughs> he's literally the blandest of the bland. He's like straight. He's got no emotion to how he talks. He's like Marco, Marco. We just need to drift together, Marco. Um. So at least okay. John Boyega is great. Yeah. Love him. I'm a little bit like, okay, so the character of Jake Pentecost is this never before heard of son of Stacker Pentecost, but he wasn't mentioned in the first movie because we hadn't thought of him back then, but now (laughs) he has a son and he's John Boyega. And who doesn't want their dad to be? Idris Elba. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. So John Boyega is fine, but the character just seems really tonally off and I don't know he shouts a lot I think I don't know if it's like the comedy moments because this is Pacific Rim had comedy moments but this the comedy is so forced in Uprising it's like every time he's on screen with um Kaylee Spaney who plays I think Amara, she's, she's yeah. <laughs> yes that one well I was gonna say the 12 year old girl because she looks 12 <laughs> I don't think she's supposed to be 12 I think she's supposed to be like 17 or something anyway when they're on screen together they're like bit of banter bit of banter yeah banter 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 funny banter banter but it doesn't work because they don't really know each other mm. and then it's like oh my god we drift compatible again i'm like yeah but what at least in the first movie you understood why he and makomori were drift compatible yeah but raleigh sorry i was thinking of his name raleigh raleigh and makomori were drift compatible anyway so i haven't even got to my worst part i'm saving my worst part for last because i've got a lot of criticism about this movie i've just hit my microphone i'm so upset um (laughs) So the other idea with this movie takes is an idea from the first movie 
when Newton Geisler basically drifts with a kaiju brain. Yeah. So there's this whole thing about the secondary kaiju brain. That's Charlie Day, isn't it? Doing his very best. Charlie Day. Bobcat yeah. Goldthwait impression. <laughs> it, is, it is exactly Bob the, or Bobcat Goldthwait. Um, and then you have this idea in this movie that he's actually the villain, which kind of makes sense because of this whole, oh, well, I drifted with a, I can't do his, an impression of his voice. Oh, I drifted with a kaiju brain. Um, <laughs> Um, but he's, he's got this psychic connection to the kaiju. But first of all, the, the, okay, I know I don't understand the science because A, this isn't real, this is like fiction, and B, like I'm not a scientist. So when he has the headset on and he has a little moment in his bedroom <laughs> with the kaiju brain. That's where, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like, first, first, okay, so the first time I saw this movie, I completely forgot about it. I did not, this movie is completely unmemorable. That's the other problem this movie has. And then I rewatched this movie for this. And I was like, I did not remember a single thing about this movie because it's that bad. So he has the moment in his bedroom. And I was like, is this like some sort of sexual thing? Because he's like, I swear he's a little bit like, oh, hey, baby, let's, uh, let's get down to it. He and calls like, the brain Alice and refers to it as his girlfriend. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. say yes. <laughs> well, okay, that's fine. Look, I, I, I'm not shaming anyone who has a kaiju brain in their bedroom. <laughs> if they want a relationship with a kaiju brain, I'm, you know, love what you love, basically, is, is what I say. <laughs> but I don't understand how the kaiju are continuing to control him, because they basically say it's the precursors and they are controlling him and controlling his actions. Because in some situations, he's him. And then in other situations, he's like some mustache twirling villain. Yeah. And then sometimes he seems to come out of it and be himself. And he's like, what have I done? And then other times he's like, what? Uh, uh. <laughs> and I just, I don't get it. This movie doesn't explain it sufficiently. No. So when it's no. revealed that he's the big bad after all, and it's not the Chinese lady who's the, the head of this company, because she's obviously set up to be the villain. Turns out she's not the villain, it's him. But I'm like, but you've not actually explained this to me for me to actually understand this. Yeah. But like, I get it in context because he's obviously been in a relationship with this kaiju for 10 years or something. So it's had a lot of time to plan. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an odd one. <laughs> I don't. So, okay. The idea... I've got, I've got, sorry, I've got so much to say. I'm, I like Please the fact that that's not even your worst bit yet. <laughs> no, I've not even gone to the worst bit. Fucking hell. So, okay, the next bad thing, it ignores the, the end credit sequence of Pacific Rim when Hannibal Chow comes out of the baby kaiju and is like, where's my shoe? Oh, where's Hannibal Chow? Again, Ron Perlman's not going to be in this movie because Guillermo del Toro was like, I don't want to direct this shit. I just want to produce it instead. I get that, but Riley Beckett's only mentioned once. It's like, mm. what? what's actually happened to him? You've not even explained what's happened to the hero of the last movie. Like, he's just yeah, casually yeah. mentioned. So that's another thing that annoys me. The look of this movie is so consistently wrong with the movie that came before it. Pacific Rim yep. was a beautiful looking movie. Yeah. Yes, it was smashy robots, smashing the face of a kaiju with a big boat. But I love it. It had this gorgeous neon colour scheme. It looked so beautiful. And then what they tried to do in Uprising was they tried to bring the Jaeger into the light. Literally, everything's, everything's in, the in the daytime. But I'll tell you what it does, and this is going to sound dreadful. It's going to sound like the worst thing I'm ever going to say about this movie. But believe me, there's worse to come. This movie feels like a Transformers movie because of it. <laughs> do you not think? 
Yes. It feels like a Transformers movie. And it's the worst thing because these Jaegers... A bad Transformers movie. A Michael Bay Transformers movie, movie, not not 1986 Transformers the movie. No, because I've done an episode (laughs) on 1986's Transformers movie. You did, yeah. And I have serious love for that movie. This is a Michael Bay Transformers movie with Stephen S. Denight as a director. Yeah. It's just, it looks... Bad. It yeah. like makes the Jaegers look bad. It's like takes. Hasn't got scale, yes. has it? Has it, it looks got scale? Like Power Rangers. <laughs> That's what it makes. It it's what it made me think scenes. of, like Power Rangers, yes, basically. <laughs> there was the scene, you know, where they all team up, and you've got like the ninja one. Yeah. Because it kind of takes away the idea that, you know, in the first movie where you had to kind of step into the Jaeger, you had to be kind of essentially strapped in. It mm. takes all that away. Because there's no physicality in this movie. Everything is like CG. So all of these practical sets and things that Del Toro is known for, it's mm. all gone. And everything is like CG and touchscreen. So instead of actually pressing physical buttons in the Jaegers, they're now like pressing touchscreens. And it, it doesn't work. It just makes everything look fake in a way that I know it's fake anyway because it's CG. But no, the, the scale is gone. It feels like, at least with Pacific Rim, the way the Jaegers moved, they kind of moved in such a way that kind of accounted for their huge size. Yeah. Whereas in this, it, it's like a fluid movement. It's like, it makes them so much smaller, which feels yeah. like a trans Michael Bay Transformers movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, okay. <laughs> um, I just, I couldn't get over the fact that the Jaegers make destroy more of a city than the kaiju do. Like, like, the, oh my god, the I didn't even like, write that in my notes. It. <laughs> that is because there's no, no consequence. There is zero is consequence. These Jaegers are basically toppling these massive skyscrapers. And like there's a scene where they've got this the power, the Jaegers have got a power to um to pick up a load of cars on the road. Mm, yeah. They don't think to check if there are people in those cars. <laughs> they just throw a load of cars. The whole idea, I really like the whole idea of you know, good Jaeger versus evil Jaeger. I like that as a premise where you've got an unknown drone pilot in a in a Jaeger yeah. versus a Jaeger with human pilots. You don't know who's controlling the drones. That's what I'm saying about how frustrating this movie is because it's got so much promise in its initial idea of these premise, drones. Yeah. And then it could go into the whole issues that society has with drones and with technology and, and how technology can be corrupted. It could have gone down that route, mm. which it kind of does, I guess. But then it's like, well, actually, no, it's Newton Geisler with the drones and it's the <laughs> precursors all along. Whatever, whatever. Um, okay. I feel like I need to get to my main reason why I really hate this movie. And is it Scott Eastwood? No. But Scott Eastwood is. Scott Eastwood's quite bad. Your, your Charlie Hallam, isn't he? <laughs> I mean he, Scott, he's there. Scott Eastwood is in this movie. <laughs> Scott Eastwood's no. the f- the first time that I've seen a male actor fail the sexy lamp test have you heard the sexy lamp test which is basically like it's feminist film theory could the female lead be replaced by a sexy lamp and (laughs) that's how you know if 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 you know if it's a a film worth watching or not scott eastwood could easily be replaced by a sexy lamp (laughs) i just feel like when they were casting this movie i feel like they were like right okay we want john boyega because he's in star wars and he's really hot right now and you're like yeah I get that. Of course you want John Boyega in your movie. What if who I think he produced it. He did. He did. I yeah, he, he did. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm happy with John Boyega in this movie. But then it's like, well, who else do we want? We want Scott Eastwood. Because he's got a chin? 
<laughs> He's the same in every movie, and every movie is I'm dull sorry, as dishwater. I'm being really cruel. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, Scotty Eastwood, if you're so listening. Sorry, Scott Eastwood. Um, and Kaylee Spaney, I think she's obviously given the role of this, oh, I'm a really rebellious teenager, and, and I can do all these really cool things. Look, I built this robot from scratch because I'm so cool. And look, I can pilot it on my own because... I'm just a rebellious teen and all of that. But that's basically all she is. So she's given nothing else other than, well, I'm just such a rebellious teen. And I'm like, okay, and you look about 12. And yeah. I don't think that you're old enough to be piloting a Jaeger. Um, and then it's like, okay, probably not. But the, this this is kind of the example that I was talking about in Logan, where it's like, we need to bring in a new demographic. What are we going to do? Let's bring in some teens because everyone loves teens in a movie. <laughs> And so they bring yeah. in all these cadets and they're like, we've reached a point where only the cadets can save the day. And it's like, these cadets have literally never been in a Jaeger before and they're going to save the day? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. <sighs> it's anyway, that action movie trope. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's just the worst. But I want to get to the absolute 100% reason why this, is, this movie is the worst. I can't wait. I can't wait. Because... In Pacific Rim, one of the things I loved most about Pacific Rim was the Jaegers and the Kaiju and not Raleigh Beckett, <laughs> literally not Charlie Hunnam at all. Rinko Kikuchi was one of the best things in Pacific Rim yeah. because not only was she a great character, she was a fleshed out character. She had her own dreams, her hopes. She had this complicated relationship with a father figure, but ultimately as a character, Mako Mori had her own arc. So much so that a new test was devised on the internet called the Mako Mori test. She is a character that has essentially a Bechdel test, uh, a Bechdel type <laughs> test named after her, whereby the Mako Mori test is that you have to have a female character in your movie and that female character's arc is completely separate to the arc of a male character. Nice. And Mako Mori was definitely not the first, but she is basically the pinnacle. Basically, people saw Pacific Rim, they saw Rinko Kikuchi as Mako Mori, and they basically said, she is, obviously, we can't, we're not going to discredit Idris Elba because he's incredible in Pacific Rim, and he is literally mm. the boss, and I love that man. Mako Mori was the standout character. Rinko Kikuchi was amazing in Pacific Rim. She was a badass. She basically took on Charlie Hunnam. She was better than him at everything. And, you know, women get shit done. And so we came to Pacific Rim Uprising and I was like, okay, what are they going to do with Makomori? Are they going to develop her character some more? Is she going to pilot a Jaeger? Is she going to, you know, be this huge badass? Is she going to be there on her own, like taking on all these kaiju and literally, literally like saving the world because that character deserves to have all of the accolades and all of the recognition. And I watched Pacific Rim Uprising and they killed Mako Mori in, <laughs> well, the first act. Yeah. And not only did they kill her, they unceremoniously killed her in a helicopter. She, she could have had a badass battle. She could have been fighting and she could have died like Idris Elba's character had died in Pacific Rim, you know, doing something heroic, you know, saving the yeah. day. And Mako Mori dies in a helicopter unceremoniously, essentially fridging the best character in Pacific Rim just enough so that her adoptive brother can avenge her death. And that, gentlemen, 
is the worst decision Pacific Rim Uprising made because look at what they could have had. Look at what they could have worked with. They could have had this character. I know, I get that, you know, I'm sure that the filmmakers were like, yeah, but she was secretary general. You know, she was, you know, in a immense privilege and position, you know, based on these 10 years and all of her hard work. I get that. That's cool. I'm glad that she was secretary general. Don't get me wrong. But you put her in a suit. The first scene is a hologram of her talking to her brother in jail. And then you have a couple of scenes of her walking around with, you know, an iPad in her hand. And then, oh, but but she does save the day because she does send them the, this information that they managed to decode and it tells the heroes everything they need. Yeah, but you just killed Mako Mori. Like, I don't think they understand what a shitty decision that was. <laughs> I'm so cross about it. Even now, I had to rewatch the movie because the only thing I remembered about the movie was they killed Mako Mori. Everything else, I didn't remember. Like, I didn't care about anything else. It was just they killed Mako Mori. Yeah, I, I watched this morning and I can't, just, can't yeah. remember. I, and then I read that they were like, oh, well, if we had a third movie, it would have been that Mako Mori was alive all along. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking fuck you. Why, don't tell me you were going to have a third movie with Mako Mori was alive all along and now she's the hero of the third movie. Fuck you. She should have been the hero of this movie. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, you're right. You're 100% right. <laughs> That's the clip, clip I'm going to use to advertise this episode. I didn't think I would get so um, emotional <laughs> about this. But considering considering what we got in the first movie... I said, as I said, I know it's not perfect. It's not the greatest movie ever made because that's the mummy. But <laughs> we could have had something brilliant in this movie. And there's little yeah. inklings of things there, like John Boyega. Yes, get him in the sequel. Maybe not Scott Eastwood or Kaylee Spaney. But Rinko Kikuchi, get her and her brother, John Boyega, drift compatible together in a Jaeger. Give me that. Yeah. Give me Give me scenes with them actually conversing together as brother and sister, having a genuine brother-sister relationship, rather than John Boyega going, oh, sorry, sis, you've got to bail me out of prison again. And, and her... Yeah, because we, we don't care. Exactly, we don't and care. her going, oh, father would point. be so disappointed in you. And, well, just, I just want to see if they're brother and sister. Show us their brother and sister, you know? Like, yeah. It annoys me when movies do this. Logan, Logan doesn't do shit like that. Because Logan actually knows its audience and doesn't pander to its audience. It, it doesn't need to explain stuff to its audience. Whereas this movie's like, oh, yes, yeah, sis. Yeah, sorry, you've got to bail me out of jail again. Yeah, oh, whatever. Just, just, show, <laughs> just show me their relationship. Biggest problem for me is, is the scripts in this film. It's, it's, it's diabolical. <laughs> the script of Pacific Rim isn't great, <laughs> I'll be honest. No, but... The character building, like you, your point towards, is just awful. The relationship between John Boyega and Scott Eastwood is embarrassing. Boyega, every joke he's making is about how handsome mm. he is. There's a, there is a, there's a female character called Jules, <laughs> which I think is a sexy lamp. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. definitely is a sexy lamp. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's, yeah, she like, yeah. It's like, which one of us is she going to choose? Uh, uh, and to uh, end of the day, you, you're not really you're not really supporting the humans to no, survive. You're like just wipe, no, wipe yeah. them out, no, they're, get they're rid of them. Literally all terrible people. I, you know, like I say, I've got a lot of love for John Boyega, 
So I feel like He's great. if anything, you know, he actually comes out decent in this movie. He does, yeah. But I feel like the movie doesn't deserve John Boyega and it certainly doesn't deserve Rinko Kikuchi. And I feel like I would have wanted to be a fly on the wall of that discussion where they were thinking about what they're going to do with Makomori and their reasonings for getting rid of her because it was just such a shitty, shitty mistake. Yeah. Would you watch your third one? I mean, there's never going to be a third one, let's be honest. There's animated, there's, there's animated series there on is. Netflix. Um, I've not watched that. I feel like, even if they turned around and said, oh, psych, uh, Makomori is alive all this time and she's been a secret Jaeger agent and fighting the kaiju on Mars or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just so past it with this franchise. Yeah. Um, I would go back and watch Pacific Rim. Because I love that movie. I genuinely have so much affection for that movie. Um, yeah, I would watch that movie. I would not bother with a sequel. I might watch the animated series because I'm a huge fan of animation and I want to see where possibly that goes. It's a but, strong premise. Um, well, it's a strong premise because it's like yeah. it's based on mecha, isn't it? Japanese anime mecha stuff. That's, so, you know, it's the premise has been around for a long time. <laughs> the, the, the mythology here is so rich and so varied. There's so much they could have done with Uprising that they were just like, nah, we just, we just want to do something shit without Mako Mori. <laughs> but, like, but why, though? <laughs> Literally, Hollywood executives make no sense. No. There is a small no. amount of fun to be had with this movie, which is you could, do a, you could get very, very drunk at a drinking game where you do a shot every time there is an action movie trope. <laughs> because oh god yeah it's got all of oh, them <laughs> it's literally got all of them man i would be so wasted but to be honest that's probably the best way to watch this movie <laughs> you know literally yeah. you'll get so drunk within like the first 10 minutes you'll probably pass out you won't have to watch the rest problem solved and you can make it worse for yourself by also having a drink every time scott eastwood says hell yeah and then have another shot every single time John Boyega says about how handsome he is Um, you'd be wasted I mean I don't disagree or when the little girl says mentions her little scrapper 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 that's mine scrapper named a scrapper oh I wonder if that's coming back at the end hmm Uh, yeah oh but I mean yeah like I said science I'm not a scientist but the physics of scrapper and how yeah. Scrapper can like demolish huge buildings when it's like tiny and it's made of junk. <laughs> and I'm just like, but mm. how? No, don't think about it. Don't. I'm, I'm, my brain's <laughs> starting to hurt. I'm thinking about it so much. We no. haven't. We haven't talked about Bern Gorman doing his very best impression of Q from from James Bond either. Oh, I've actually no. forgot he was in this movie. Um, he, he tries. He, I think I he's literally right. think he's doing his kind of. I'm, I could be better than Ben Whishaw. Come on, cast me. You know, this is this is his audition. <laughs> I mean, look, he's fine. I always remember him from Torchwood, and yeah. you know, he's fine in the first movie. He's just like the eccentric weirdo character, and he's probably plays it a little bit more straight in this one because obviously Newton Geisler's the yeah. weird. Character. You can't really have two weird characters. If I had to pick one of those two that I thought was fucking a kaiju, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd I'm sorry that's got to yeah. be the clip that you use. <laughs> 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 
yeah, he certainly does. He certainly is weird. There's a nice little bit where he where he hits someone with his cane and goes, "At last, I've got a mission." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he's all right. I, like I say, I I feel like I feel like I feel terrible because I feel like I've been way way overly um, negative about no, this no, movie no, than I, been... I actually plan to be. Exactly the right amount of negative. <laughs> and you've been holding it in for all I've this never time had anyone to tell you... before. This is like a therapy session for me. <laughs> a lot of people use it for that as well. <laughs> I can understand why. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Egglands Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Have you watched the sequel? It wasn't going to be as good as you expected. So you were going in with low expectations. It was better. Oh, okay. And I, and I think we can talk about Grease 2. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I never thought that Grease 2 was going to be bad because I just, that's the stuff that I grew up with. That's my Grease. Yeah. So, yeah, I have, like I say, an unsurpassable love for Grease 2. That, and I, I feel like I know that a lot of people think of it as like a cool classic now. And I do feel like a lot of people are coming out of the woodwork and saying how good it is. Because I, I certainly, when I was a kid, it was like sacrilege to say that Greece 2 was the superior Greece. But I can say now, Greece 2 is the superior Greece. And that is a stone cold fact. <laughs> right. But I, I've actually got the idea popped into Why? my head. How? What? Sorry. <laughs> what? What? Tell me just. Give me one sentence why why Grease Two is better. Okay, so I don't like either of them. It's fine. <laughs> Do you know what? I've actually I could direct you to a full feature that I've written on film stories about why Grease Two is. Better. I think I read it earlier. Did you really? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I can tell you. I feel like although Grease Two has it does reuse a lot of the old kind of the Grease formula is is very much reused, and I will yeah, yeah. say that obviously it doesn't do anything particularly different except it gender swaps the main characters but what it does do in gender swapping the main characters is it gives us a character like stephanie zanoni i can't even say her name i'm so excited stephanie zanoni played by michelle pfeiffer and this movie was set in 1962 i believe and it came out in 1982 and obviously neither of you are women <laughs> so you, I'm just stating that as a, I believe that to be fact. Um, but 
you've got to understand female representation in film is generally right. not great. Um, you obviously mentioned earlier, Rich, sexy lamp. That yeah. A lot of female characters generally are the sexy lamp. Um, they're literally, or they're fridged, like Mako Mori is, to further the man's yeah, yeah. arc. Um, or they're just the nagging wife or girlfriend. And so one of the things that I really didn't like so much about Greece was the fact that it was the whole idea that it's Sandy who has to change for Danny. And it's yeah, yeah. Sandy who's kind of doing the chasing. And Danny's all like, oh, hey, baby, yeah, we had this fling on the beach and I don't care about you anymore. And um, the whole, the rapiness of Greece, <laughs> to be honest, it's a bit rapey. It is. It really is. And Greece, Greece too. Greece too doesn't. It's, it's not necessarily better in that respect. There is a song called Do It For Our Country, which is basically yep. this guy also trying quite rapey. to have sex <laughs> with a girl in a... Um, in like this bunker um, because he's like, there's a war going on and we need to do it for our country. And yeah, it's not great. And I will completely hold my hands up and say, Grease 2 is not a perfect movie. I know it's shocking, but it's not. But what I love is I love that Stephanie as a character is given so much agency. She's a very modern female character in the 60s. And when I was growing up, there weren't really very many female characters that were on screen that were like, Stephanie, in that she's basically, you know, I don't need a man. I I just want to be who I want to be. You know, I want to live my life. I don't want to be tied down yeah. to a man. I want to do my own thing. And if I do have a man, I have a man on my terms. Not because, you know, some man wants me and I don't want him. She's very forward thinking, really, which sounds sounds weird to say in 2022. But <laughs> when I was a kid... That was really positive representation for me to have a woman who literally just wants to get on with her own life. She doesn't just want to be someone's girl. She doesn't want that to define her. That is actually really important. The other female characters in Greece too are kind of sidelined because Michelle Pfeiffer's in that movie, guys. <laughs> so why, of course, you're going to sideline the other girls. And what the only reoccurring but, character from Greece disappears halfway through. <laughs> well, yeah. So um, I, I believe from reading up on some information about Greece too that they they wanted to have all of these scenes with Frenchie and they wanted Frenchie to be sort of throughout this movie. Um, and then I believe they ran out of money or something or they stopped production. I'm not entirely certain. I need to do an episode on Greece too. It's been on my list for so long, but I really oh, want to. Can't wait. <laughs> I really want to go into the history of Greece too, but. Yeah, I I just have so much love for this movie. You know, the songs are just ridiculous. And it's literally, it's so sex positive. And if you think about any sort, is true. any sort of movie. That is true. A musical, you don't get songs like Reproduction in any other musical. Literally about flowers and stamens and where does the pollen go and all of that sort of stuff. It's brilliant. It's genius. <laughs> I could just see Dave go, where does the pollen go? <laughs> exactly. But that's the thing. They're earworms. They stay in your head. Yeah, that's true. You know, you just you just have to say reproduction and you just know the 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 lyrics and how it goes. Um I'm just I I just I just really love it. I, I, was I love it that you love it. And I love it that you're talking about moments of the film that I wouldn't even <laughs> thought of. To me, it doesn't work. But the way you're you're arguing, I'm like, oh, that does sound right, doesn't it? That is I'm absolutely true. Uh, Grace 2 is better than Grease. 
mind control. It works. It works. I might have to watch it again now. Um, did you say you had another pick for this this answer? Were you thinking that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you said about um, a sequel that was better than I thought it, well, basically better than it could have possibly been. Um, yeah. The one that always pops to my mind is Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that's is a great, great pick. pick. Because you think of Jumanji... That was a movie that we all grew up with as kids. Yeah. Robin Williams is iconic. Literally everything in that movie, it doesn't look brilliant to today's standards, but it's still a lot of fun to watch. And then they say, we're making a sequel and it's going to be set in a video game. And you're like, and it's got the rock in it. And you're like, oh my God, this is, this is going to be <laughs> duff. And I watched Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and I was so impressed. I thought it was funny. I thought it was heartwarming. I loved all of the characters. Jack Black was hilarious. Brilliant. Oh, so the good. Rock was really funny. Karen Gillan was great. And yeah, I was just like, I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy the sequel to it as much, but Welcome to the Jungle, I thought was actually really surprisingly good for what it... Because again, that could have been a Pacific Rim Uprising of a movie. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest, but it, it was... It took the same principles of Jumanji and... Made it a bit more modern, but still kind of kept that kind of humour and, and, and serious peril mm. at, at times as well. Because that was the thing about Jumanji, was sometimes there were situations where you thought, these characters aren't going to get out of this. But this is proper fear-inducing stuff. Yeah, it was scary. And um, <laughs> it was quite a scary movie for kids. Robin Williams got sucked into the game for like yeah. 30 years. Exactly. Is... But I loved as well in Welcome to the Jungle that they had that little nod to his character and they they at least tried to keep the spirit of Jumanji and and all of that alive and the idea that it was set in a video game and I'm a like I said I'm a big nerd I love playing video games I play video games pretty much all of my well I was gonna say adult life but I probably started when I was like 11 or 12 and loved playing like all sorts of video games and so the idea of having a movie like Jumanji set in a video game world just instantly appealed. But I was like, oh my God, it's going to be awful. And then I, I was miraculously surprised. What is your dream sequel? There's a theme here. Yeah, there's a definite theme because, as I said, Guillermo del Toro is literally my favourite director. I've seen everything that he's ever done. And a lot of the stuff that he's done, I feel like, has been quite underrated. Obviously, he's had these huge hits like um, Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. And I still maintain he should have won the Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth. But anyway, I digress. Um, because Pan's Labyrinth is his masterpiece. Mm. But I feel like a sequel to Pan's Labyrinth just would not work because Pan's Labyrinth <laughs> is very much a, a single entity and del toro as a as a filmmaker he's made several sequels one of the best sequels he ever made was blade 2 which he obviously yeah. he didn't do the first blade movie that was stephen norrington but blade 2 is one of his underrated gems i think that movie is incredible so del toro has previous with doing sequels but the favorite things that del toro has ever done and really the thing that really introduced me apart from pan's labyrinth i guess in a way was his Hellboy movies. This is a definite theme because this is another comic book movie. So we've done a comic book movie and then we've done a sequel to a Del Toro movie and now we're doing a Del Toro sequel comic book movie. <laughs> so there you go. I didn't plan that. But 
I am such a fan of his Hellboy movies. And I've actually also done episodes on that as well. I've done episodes on both of them because I'm genuinely such a huge fan of not so much the character because I didn't really know the character until I kind of looked into the character and the history of the character. But that first Hellboy movie, I loved the kind of Lovecraftian elements to it. It's basically just a huge Lovecraftian monster movie with all of these like Nazi elements to it. And it was a very kind of dark movie. So the way it was shot, it was shot in like these muted blues and greys. And it wasn't a movie that I saw at the cinema. I actually caught it on DVD. But I loved that Hellboy movie immediately because it's very much my sort of thing. Because, as I said, I'm a huge nerd and I love stuff like that. And again, it's like Del Toro's world building. And he wasn't really given a great deal of creative control on that movie. And I think it shows a little bit the constraints that he had with that movie. But he had like the perfect cast in that movie because we had the legendary Ron Perlman as Hellboy. Amen. What yeah. a man. We've already mentioned him in Pacific Rim and they didn't use him in Pacific Rim Uprising because they were morons. But Ron <laughs> Perlman is the absolute dude and he is, he is Hellboy to me. He's the only person who could be Hellboy. I feel very sorry for David Harbour because there was no way that his movie could ever compete, even though that is a movie that does have some very interesting scenes and some very interesting things in it, yeah. but otherwise a bit of a mess. So going from that first Hellboy movie in 2004, we got that first Hellboy movie. And then in 2008, we got, they, they basically said, look, we're doing another Hellboy movie, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And as soon as I saw that movie, I... Because it was so Del Toro, everything about it, you had these beautiful, it was like a stark contrast between the looks of the two movies. You had, you went from these like mm. dark blues and greys to this rich yellows and reds and this beautiful world realised only the way Del Toro could realise it, where essentially it boils down to the last prince of his kind against the last prince of his kind. Yeah. And that is basically what the Golden Army is all about. And I have such an affection for those two movies. And then obviously when we got to the end of The Golden Army and how wonderful that movie is and how beautiful it looked and how emotional that movie was as well in so many ways, I felt like there was always a point where they were like, we're going to make a Hellboy 3. And I was like, yes, yeah. this is what I want. Give me the Hellboy 3 that I want. And so many other fans across the world were basically saying the same thing. Look, we want this Hellboy 3. When's it going to happen? And that was basically the only thing on the internet for a period of time is when is Hellboy 3 going to happen? And it was always, yeah, we're going to do it, but Guillermo del Toro is going to do this instead and then he's going to go to this. Oh no, it, Ron Perlman's busy with this. Because it was, as with most movies, especially with sequels, it's a case of, right, you need to get your director, you need to get all your stars aligned, literally, literally stars aligned. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> all of that. Everyone needs to be available and ready to work and do this movie and... Obviously, you want the same cast involved. You want Doug Jones because he's incredible. There is no one else who could be Abe Sapien other than Doug Jones. You need Selma Blair because you need Liz Sherman in a Hellboy 3 because she's the mother of Hellboy's twins. And then you get the twins involved. And what are the twins going to be? And there were so many possibilities for what they were going to do. And was, was Hellboy going to bring about the apocalypse? 
Or was it going to be one of his twins bringing about the apocalypse? And all of this really cool stuff. Basically, what I'm saying is, I don't know if I've told you, my dream sequel is Hellboy 3. But <laughs> it has to be, I feel like I've got a roundabout way of telling you what it is, but it has to be directed by Guillermo del Toro and it has to star Ron Perlman because there is no other universe where Hellboy 3 would be acceptable directed by anyone else and starring anyone else as Hellboy because you have to have those two elements. They've yeah. always said they want to do it up to a point and it's always been scheduling conflicts, whatever, whatever. No, the story's not right. All of this sort of stuff. Oh no, we've run out of money. We can't do it now. Because the Hellboy movies, they weren't huge movies. Like they didn't make a huge amount of money at the box office, but the fans were really passionate about the movies. I've always said, you know, if it took literally for me to sell a kidney to make Hellboy 3, I would probably do that <laughs> because I love that world so much. And I feel like we've reached a point now where it probably will never happen. I feel like we reached that point maybe about 10 years ago where like Ron Perlman was like, no, nah, I think I'm too old now because he was in his 50s pretty much when he was making those movies. So yeah. considering he was doing that at that age, not that that's old or anything, just disclaimer, but I feel like if they announced tomorrow where they were doing a Hellboy 3 and it was going to be a Del Toro movie and Ron Perlman was coming back and they were having the whole cast coming back and they had this incredible story about maybe even a Logan type story like Old Man Hellboy. Old Man Hellboy, I'd love that. <laughs> I mean, how incredible would that be? Like he's an older guy, he's got grown up twins you know, he's still got this prophecy that he's going to bring about the apocalypse and all of that sort of stuff. How incredible would that be? But it has to be They're a Del amazing. Toro movie. It can't not be Del Toro. And because I feel like we're never going to get it. Yeah, I feel like my, my dream will never come true. So, yeah, that's depressing. That's kind of a depressing thing to leave it on. But... Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere the other day that, uh, about Ron, Ron Perlman saying kind of never say never for Hellboy 3. I think he also said now. Yeah, maybe now and ever. Because he yeah. said he is getting yeah. old. I think that there's a problem between Del Toro, Perman, and the Hellboy creator. Yeah. I think holds Mike the rights. Ming Mignola. Mignola. Mike Mignola, yeah. I'm not sure if they're on, they're on the same page. No, I don't think they are. And I think because obviously the plan for Hellboy 3 all fell through and so they made the reboot. Mm. And Mike Mignola was very involved in that reboot because that was... I think there's always been a bit of a disparity between his version of Hellboy and he's not been too happy about Del Toro's version of Hellboy because he doesn't feel like mm. Del Toro has been particularly faithful. And, you know, at the end of the day, Del Toro, Del Toro was as faithful as he could possibly be with the first movie, I think. And then the yeah. second movie is pure Del Toro. And I feel like maybe he got a little bit of a backlash uh, from the creator about that movie. But to be honest, I, I feel like... You don't hire Del Toro unless you want these rich thematic visuals and this world building and all of this stuff. You know, someplace like the Troll Market, in, in the hands of any other director, would literally just be flat and boring. But with Del mm. Toro, he adds all these visual layers. You've got all of these stunning practical creature effects that any other person would be like, oh, we'll just stick a seat. You know, it's, it's like... Um, George Lucas will just stick a CG character and no one will notice. Whereas Del Toro actually creates these incredible works of art with his visuals, with like the angel of death and, and these beautiful creatures that come out of his brain and he puts them on screen and no one does it like Del Toro does. So yeah. I feel like if you're going to make a movie like this, which is so steeped in all of this rich visual storytelling, then 
you need Del Toro. But if you're going to carry on the story of Hellboy as as in his movies, you can't do that without Del Toro. Because it wouldn't yeah. it would feel it would fall flat. It wouldn't be the same. And and to be honest, Ron Perlman wouldn't do it without him because when Del Toro left the Hellboy 3 project as it was, Ron Perlman was like, well, I'm not doing it without a mate, so fuck off. <laughs> and just kind of left because, and then obviously they retooled it, they made it a reboot, they brought in David Harbour and all of that. And I don't like that Hellboy reboot at all, but I do think there are some good things in that that I really like. I like the Baba Yaga scene. I think that's really mm. well done. But other than that, I feel like it's a bit nonsensical. Um, but no hate to David Harbour. I think he tries his best with the character and I think he does a decent job, but he's no Ron Perlman, man. You know, that's the only that's his only problem is he's not Ron Perlman. I kind of bonded with our with with our friend Robbie when we were at university, Dave, over Hellboy because we both like the comics, and and he went, right. you know, there's going to be a movie, and I was like, oh, there's going to be a Hellboy movie, and he's like, yeah, and you know, he's going to be Hellboy, and he, I was like, no, he's like Ron Perlman, I was like. Well, of course it is, because he looks like him, doesn't he? <laughs> and then he's like, and it's going to be Guillermo del Toro directing it. And we're like, oh, this is going to be so amazing. Literally, <laughs> and- every single fanboy was like, Aah! Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what we were. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I completely get that. It's all there, isn't it? Like, I forgot watching it today, how that Angel of Death scene, how they lay out literally the plot for the yeah. film. Yeah. Like it's it's there, it's ready to go, it's all baked. I want it, I want it so yeah. much. Well, that's the thing. So many people oh. want it, but I I feel like if you want to do Old Man Hellboy, then that that might be a really good idea. I feel like we yeah. might have solved the problem of what can we do with Hellboy now that Ron Perlman is like seventy. Yeah, I think Old Man Hellboy. Let's Grandpa let's get it Hellboy. done. Let's get it done. Let's crowdfund. I've got some savings. I can send it over to Legendary. <laughs> I think that's also the problem that no studio. No, will touch I know, it. and it's really sad. I don't understand. Why. I don't think they've it's not made any money though, has it? No, that's the problem. N- none of them. N- of the three movies they've made, none of them have made any money. That's, that's because they've got the releasing really wrong. They released the number two like the second week when Dark Knight came out. Mm. So so Dark Knight just blew everything away in 2008. I'm not quite sure what happened in 2004. I did get to see it in the cinema, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, I saw it in the cinema too. But yeah, 20, the 2019 one made made like nothing. I yeah. think, you know, budget of 50 million and took 50 million, which we know is you know, a loss because you have to double it for marketing, don't you? So. Pretty much, yeah. But um, yeah, it's um. So yeah, we've ended on a bit of a downer. I feel. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, I think we've got to be so grateful of what we do have. We have two incredible Hellboy movies, and uh, well, a Duff reboot. But also, yeah. ultimately, we've got two incredible Hellboy movies that are so different to each other, and yet they share the same DNA. And there's some really great performances and some really wonderful scenes as well like the just just the way del toro shoots his movies and this is again going back to pacific rim you know you can tell that it's a del toro movie with the way that he shoots things and the way that he sets up his scenes and he just adds so many visual interesting things in the background in the foreground and all of that and he does it in his hellboy movies as well it's texture it is that's what Pacific Rim was missing. We were talking yeah. about earlier. It's, it's all you mean uprising? Like Uprising's missing there, not Pacific Rim. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Don't slander sorry, Pacific uprising. Rim. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> 
I mean, so I feel like I feel like we've we've kind of gone through a little theme here that obviously clearly huge nerd likes uh, monsters and robots, does not like Transformers, and um, basically that Guillermo del Toro can do no wrong, uh, which is fundamentally, I think, a life lesson that we should all live by. That if you don't know what to do, then look at del Toro. So those were M from Verbal Dioramas, Unequal Sequels. I really enjoyed that, Dave. Uh, I love talking to M. She's so passionate about movies and so knowledgeable. Uh, yeah, it was a cracking episode. Yeah, it was It was just a lovely chat. And we could, it could have been, a, it could be our longest episode ever because we did talk for a long time, didn't we? It was a long one. Uh, <laughs> so out there, there will be an unedited version of this. One day, you never know if we do Patreon. Yeah, we'll yeah we will put it on Patreon. If anyone's looking for a three hour long episode, then yeah, <laughs> you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think of uh, her picks? Finally, someone picks, picks Logan. Yeah. Picks Logan. Logan's a great pick. Not one that instantly comes to mind, but actually it's a brilliant choice. Really brilliant choice. And uh, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I also completely agree with her on Pacific Rambling. That is an absolute pile of old poop. You could just set that one alight, never see it again, <laughs> and it made no difference to the world. Nah. It's, it's just not needed. It nah. was never needed in the first place, I don't think. And especially when Del Toro stepped away. It's just like, nah. okay, let that one just be like a great individual film that yeah. people can enjoy and not worry about it. We but. didn't need it. <sighs> has a lot of problems going for it most of it being set in the bloody daytime <laughs> i don't get it i don't get some of the creative choices in that movie at all they're bizarre but there we yeah. go felt very power rangers anyway um and and yeah brilliant dream sequel choice as well been waiting for that one to be honest because i also want a hellboy free mm. i would do anything for a hellboy free yeah um it's sad every day that we've never got it um it annoys me it makes me angry doesn't keep me up at night. Maybe it does. I did sleep badly last night. Um, oh. Yeah. But, yeah, and I loved her choices for that. And Hellboy 3 should be made. And if Del Toro is listening, because, again, we know all the uh, the movie people listen. All the, all the big Hollywood guys, they're all listening to this. You know, oh, come yeah, because that's where they get their sequel ideas from nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're all tuning in to go, hang on a second. That yeah. dream sequel idea, let's make that. So yeah. if he's listening, Del Toro, get it done. <laughs> quickly before Ron Perlman's too old yes <laughs> uh, so if you like what you've heard this is the first episode you've tuned into please make sure you hit that subscribe button uh, and we will drop into your inboxes every single week there we also have some extra episodes on Friday so if you want to listen to more of me and Dave um, or you can contact us on Twitter and tell us you love us. We are at Unequal Sequel on Twitter. We also have an Instagram, at Unequal Sequel there too. Or you can send us an email, unequalsequel at hotmail.com. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please carry on listening. Please, like Rich said, tell everybody. I've got nothing else to say. So it's going to be an au revoir from me and a bye-bye from him. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye. Bye.